Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations and imaginations and desires of all our hearts joined together be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four evangelists, tell the story in their gospels of who is Jesus and why does it matter. In all four cases, the bare bones of the same facts exist, and they all climax around the critical acts that we've remembered in this past week, and today we celebrate that Christ died, that Christ was buried, that he has been risen. But in many of the stories that you're used to hearing on Easter, it goes on and we hear stories of Jesus, the risen Lord, and his risen presence, interacting with the disciples, reassuring them. We hear about Jesus having fish on the beach with Peter and repeating his assurance to Peter that Peter still has a place in his kingdom. We, we see Jesus calling Mary's name. We, we see Jesus inviting Thomas to, to touch his side and stop doubting and believe. We have lots of beautiful pictures of the interaction of Jesus with the disciples. But in Mark's gospel, we have none of that. Did you know that the words that Lowell read today from Mark's gospel in chapter 16 were the end of Mark's story? The end of Mark's story. It leaves us in a lurch. Now, there's no doubt that we can decide to move on from there. But one of the reasons I decided I wanted to speak on Mark's gospel and Mark's depiction this year is that for some reason, I related so much to the way he took us right up to the edge of not knowing what would happen. I found myself relating to those women. Yes, have no doubt about it, we have some strong things to affirm as a result of Christ's resurrection that life is more than bio biology and God's life is stronger than death, that true love cannot be defeated by evil, and that the teachings of Jesus and the claims of Jesus are vindicated by the resurrection. But Mark's gospel leaves us on a note of something of uncertainty. It's suspenseful, and I, I found it strangely compelling. Now, his story is, is sparse. Uh, as, as we've heard, three women who were part of the entourage that uh, got to know uh, Jesus as part of the people coming from Galilee. Jesus resurrection and crucifixion happened down in Jerusalem, but his ministry started out in Galilee, and the disciples who followed him were fishermen, tax collectors, people from the cities of that region, and they followed him along the way of his ministry. And many of the women 
uh, followed along too. And three of them, after the events of Jesus' death and burial, after they've observed the Sabbath, come back to the tomb to anoint his body. The only thing they're worried about uh, is how they're going to get the big stone rolled away. And they find, to their amazement, that it's been rolled away when they get there. And then Mark tells us that they encounter a young man, all dressed in a white robe, which maybe sounds like an angel, but it's not really called an angel and not hyped up as dazzling, except that the women are alarmed and they find an empty tomb. And the angel young man repeats the words that they have heard Jesus tell them three times already as they journeyed towards Jerusalem. Jesus was crucified, he was buried, and now the tomb is empty. He's not here, he has been raised. And he's gone ahead of you, and you'll meet him there. Very, very sparse. And as I hear the story and put myself in the women's position and then learn that their reaction to this is fear and a decision to be silent and not fulfill their responsibility, their task to go tell the others that Jesus is risen, not to go give Peter reassurance that Christ will meet him in Galilee. I wonder, I wonder what would it have been like if they had not ever spoken? What if they hadn't done their part to share the news, to move the story along, to inform the others? What would it have been like? It makes me think about what if the message of faith hadn't gotten out? What would our world be like? And I think, Mark, is that all? Is that all there is? Some of the earliest uh, people in Christianity did not like Mark's ending particularly well. They found it unsatisfying. And, and so uh, you'll see, if, if you pick up different Bibles, they'll, they'll have a couple of different endings that were written and added onto it. But the scholars think, really, originally, Mark ended the gospel with this great edge with us, the hearers, being brought right up to the edge of uncertainty. And I find I relate to it because it's on the pre precipice of choice. Imagine, if you will, what was going on in the women's minds as they were frightened and decided not to move forward, not to speak. Well, for one thing, they were women. They had not been given any kind of roles like that before by Jesus. They were the ones who were there to kind of help do things in the background and help the ministry along. But here they were given a, a very important job. And women were not particularly considered reliable witnesses in those days. We know from one of the other gospel accounts that when they did go and tell the disciples, they were really not believed. They dismissed it as an idle tale. Why else might they been have been frightened of 
and paralyzed and decided to stay silent. They might have been thinking about, well, who is it that they were going to talk to? Peter and the disciples, well, they had already cut out on Jesus. They had not shown themselves to be particularly reliable or strong or discerning or wise. And maybe the women also felt paralyzed because, well, they weren't exactly sure what happened. It was just based on the words of promise. There were alternate explanations that could have been made. They could have filled in the gaps differently. Were they sure that the message that they would be taking would be true? In fact, I find that those women were on this very same kind of edge that I often feel myself on in faith. Can I trust myself? Can I trust others to share God's love, God's truth? Am I up to it? Am I ready to take what will come as a result of speaking? Maybe it's easier to hang back and be quiet. All of it makes me think of the question Jesus asked, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And so I wondered, what is it that brought the women, whose story clearly was told because we have it written down, what is it that brought them out of their fear and paralysis into ultimately sharing their story. And I want to talk about faith and what faith is. I read two books this week that really uh, just spoke clearly to me in, in different ways about faith and, and what, what it means for practical everyday life. And one of them was a book simply called Faith, a Journey for Everyone, and it was written by uh, former President Jimmy Carter, who's now 93 years old, and whatever you thought of his po political orientation, at this point in his life, he has certainly shown a life well-lived. Through his work at the Carter Center, he's been a big part of helping to eradicate serious debilitating diseases all around the world. He's been part of launching the Habitat for Humanity movement into a big, well-publicized, well-supported outreach to people in low-income housing, and many, many more things. And Carter writes in the book about faith, which he attributes as the reason for his optimism and effectiveness in life. He actually thinks that faith in God is related pretty closely to having faith in ourselves and faith in others, faith in high ideals and morals, things that can bind people together, and faith in God. In fact, I, I suppose I found him so compelling because as I look at the world we're in today and the, the situation of kind of lack of, of cooperative spirit and, and lack of optimism in spite of the fact that there are so many good things that are happening, I, I think maybe Carter's on to something. He says, I wonder if humanity can survive without faith in ourselves, in one another, or in the basic principles of life. 
Can the moral values of democracy, freedom, justice, equality, and compassion be transmitted to the next generation without religious faith? I hope so, but I am confident that religious faith enhances the possibility of that transmission. So what is it about faith? Well, Carter's very, very insistent, as our tradition is, that faith is a gift. But there's also a part of faith that's a choice. The second book that I read that I loved this week that helped me so much was referred to uh, on Ann Fisher's show this week. Perhaps some of you heard her interview an author, Stephen Kusisko, who is a man who was um, born blind and um, lived for the first 38 years of his life uh, in a kind of box of his own and his parents' making. He was raised by parents who were very, very uh, intellectual, but not very emotionally savvy. They were not warm or nurturing. They were not people of faith. He, he uh, in fact, felt always that his disability of blindness uh, being legally blind was an embarrassment to his mother, and he was always told by his parents to pretend that he could see and not let people know he had a disability and just, if he tried hard enough, he could get through life. And so he says for the first 38 years of his life, he, he lived in very small towns. He uh, went on very uh, close, repetitive routes to get from walking at home to work. He worked in a small college town. He was a, a, a lecturer at a college, and he's a poet. And um, his life was very, very confined. Um, but he talks about the transformation that happened in his life when he got a, gui a guide dog. And, um, I just want to talk a little bit about his story because I found it really powerful. He uh, talks about his early life, and when he was 17 years old, he was bullied at school regularly. He really had a miserable existence getting home from school because his mother was an alcoholic and she was. Um, erratic, unkind, unavailable, and uh, sometimes just plain emotionally abusive. And then he said, uh, at 17, he decided he was in so much despair, he just quit eating. He just stopped having any appetite to eat anything at all. And it went on for a long time, and he became very ill. And uh, his parents, uh, were concerned and sent him to a, a, a psychiatric hospital for a week. It didn't seem to do uh, much good. They did some health testing to see what was going on, and then without results, they brought him back home. And he said during that time, uh, one morning, against all odds, he decided to go to church. No one in his family ever went to church. He said uh, he made his way to a little Episcopal uh, chapel in the center of their small college town and um, took his place in the pews. And as he sat there, he mused, and I quote, 
my blindness was a problem. Certainly I was the reason my mother drank and took pills. Surely my ruined eyes were the source of her despair. Surely if I was just a better child, less defective, or more successful at covering up my deficiencies, why then all would be better. I was 17 and already felt like an old man. But as he sat there, he warmed uh, to the kindness uh, of the minister's words. And, and then next thing he knew, it was time for communion about which he knew nothing as he sh sat shivering in his pew. But he said, I went to the altar rail, got down on my knees, reached out and took the bread. And the words he still remembers, take and eat, for this is my body. It was the sacrament of Christ's flesh and blood. My fingers were anemic as I took the bread and my hand shook. He remembers hearing, come, risen Lord, and deign to be our guest. And I am the bread of life. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he says, how could I explain? Certainly I was a starving, blind adolescent, chilled in April light, but one foot from death, who felt a heat inside, who felt his own blood and flesh kissed from somewhere deep and still, he goes on to write. I decided to live from that day forward. I never mentioned the experience to anyone. I love the story because in one sense, it's the beginning of faith. And faith is like the part of faith that's like a choice, is like choosing life and receiving a gift. As I think about the women poised at the brink of decision, I want to urge, choose life. It's not about whether or not you know or understand it all. It's not about having a perfect explanation and understanding all the mysteries about our Jesus' claims of faith. Doubt has a place in faith, but fear does not. Choose life. The other thing that jumped out at me from this passage is that faith is about accepting Galilee. In, in the young man's words that were spoken to the three women who were stunned there, he tied in the empty tomb to Jesus' words of promise and also reminded them that at one point Jesus had said, after I'm risen, I'll go before you to Galilee back in your hometown, and there I'll meet up with you. Faith is about accepting that we are to do God's work in the places where we live, love, in our communities, our families, in our workplaces. Faith is doing that in light of even difficult things the cross. Uh, Jimmy Carter recounts a time in uh, 1966. He says it was a really uh, critical turning point for him in his life of faith. Up until that point, 
everything that he'd tried to do that he thought he was being called to do had been pretty successful. Um, and uh, it was in 1966 when he did his first run for governor of Georgia. And at the end of the day, uh, he, he was someone who stood for uh, his integration of society and uh, he thought he fought a well-done campaign and had a good record to run on. And, but at the end of the day, he came in third uh, in the number of votes out of the field of candidates, and no one had gotten a clear majority of the votes. And the Georgia state law was that the legislature then chose among the three candidates. And they chose uh, someone who was an avowed segregationist and racist, and he was devastated by that. He thought his political life was over, but even more than that, he thought that God was rejecting him through the people's vote. His sister, Ruth Carter Stapleton, who is an evangelist, made a trip down from uh, North Carolina to talk to him. And she told him that if he retained his simple faith, he could find a way to use his apparent failure as a step towards success in the eyes of God. And then she asked him if he'd ever really gone out of his way to try to fulfill his obligations as a Christian. And it hit him. He said he remembered that uh, he felt kind of convicted by a recent sermon where the pastor asked him, uh, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Kind of a cheesy question, but it stuck with him. And so he decided... Uh, he decided that uh, she was worth listening to, and she advised him to search for a way to serve others for a while and not be so preoccupied with his own ambitions. So he ended up stretching himself out of his comfort zone and going on a lay witness mission, and he saw some people there that he learned something from that stuck with him for the rest of his life, some really effective evangelists whose secret, he asked, and the man said, I just try to have two loves in my ear, a love for God and for the person who happens to be in front of me at any time. So maybe, maybe Mark didn't put in all of the stories about disciples encountering the risen Christ because he was confident that if the disciples went back to Galilee to the places where they worked, lived and engaged their community, that they would have their own experiences of the risen Jesus there. Maybe faith is coming in the hands of acceptance of the call to go out and serve. And then finally, we say that faith is accepting Galilee, but not being alone. One of the things I love about uh, Jimmy Carter, he's such a bright, bright man, uh, and, and has so many vast interests, but his faith is really pretty simple, and he speaks about it in simple, compelling ways. He talks about faith being a companion, a companionship with Jesus. To me, he says, Jesus Christ is not an object to be worshipped, but a person and a constant companion. This week, I uh, had 
the occasion, sometimes you get hit with truth in the face. I go just like uh, John does and, and many others here, uh, Linda and many others, go to Hubbard Elementary School to read with uh, reading buddies um, uh, every week. And uh, I had uh, two reading buddies for this, this year. And um, I went a few weeks ago, I was with Antonio, who I hadn't seen for quite a while, because every time I was there for reading buddy time, he was either assigned to uh, go out with a, a reading specialist or something else where he was not in school, or I just didn't always know why I wasn't meeting with Antonio, but I, I saw him um, and uh, was really shocked that after uh, just a few months' time, he seemed like a totally different kid. I was, was really shocked, and it wasn't for the good. He was so discouraged, second grader. Um, he told me, you know, kids have been telling me I'm dumb ever since I was in first grade. Now I believe it. He was in second grade. And, and he was really giving up, you know, and I, I, I'll tell you, second graders are, con are, are capable of true existential despair. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to see. And I, I dispensed with the reading and tried to give him a little pep talk. I wasn't getting anywhere. And I, I went home uh, really so upset by it. I, I was driven to my knees to pray for him and then realized, why haven't I been doing this all along? Um, but I prayed for him and I asked others to, uh, my disciple class and in, uh, in worship at the nine o'clock service. And when I went back, and I also went to talk to the teacher about what, what kind of help he was getting and how I might help better. When I went back the next Wednesday, he, uh, he seemed like a different kid. I walked into the classroom to go over to the other person first, and he, he waved me down. He's like, hey, hey, let's do our reading today. I, I really, I, I'm really going to try today. I'm, I'm, I'm doing better. I'm doing better. So I was delighted to go out in the hall with him and was saying, you know, I was really, really worried about you, Antonio. I, I prayed for you this week. And he lifted his head just like this and said, well, then I got to tell you, it really works. <laughs> and I thought, it made me realize, made me realize how tiring it is to try to do the Lord's work without the Lord's help. And how different it is to do them together with the companion. And this is the other aspect of the story of the blind man whose memoir is called Have Dog Will Travel, A Poet's Journey. He talked about his experience um, at the end of his 38 years, he lost his job as a little uh, small town lecturer in a small town college, place he'd been his whole adult life. And he was in despair because he didn't even know how to get out to look for another job. I mean, he couldn't travel to interviews. He, he just didn't know, he was paralyzed. And he finally decided he needed assistance and heard about this guide dog program and was a little bit skeptical. And actually, when he ran it by his parents, he was like, oh, but people are really going to know you got a problem. 
But he put that voice down. And he started in the program. And he said he was absolutely astonished at the way the animal blind guide dog by his side after training was able to communicate with him and get him out in the world and increase his confidence. And all of a sudden, his world became very big and very large. And he said it was really an experience of walking prayer. One of the things I thought was so neat about the way he told his story is that he got to know what goes into a guide dog, what makes the guide dog so effective. And he was told, you know, it's really about the way they're raised before we get them for training. They are infused with people who love them and affirm them, and they are full of the energy from that. And, and when they come and we help give them a little more guidance in their training, they love their work. And he said, I realized this triumph that I had of feeling like I was soaring now through life where I had once been so frightened of everything. There was a transmission of love behind that triumph. His dog's name was Corky. People had loved Corky and fed her, housed her, laughed with her, and then when their bond was deepest, they gave her back to the school. The act had a purity about it, a quality one may call rejoicing. I could feel it. I, who'd spent my days taking unhappiness too much to my heart. That kind of mobility, lighthearted movement, support, is the kind of companionship that Christ who goes before us into our places where we will try to serve, offers to us. And so I want to ask you, there are people in your lives, in your homes, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, there are people who have not known that kind of love. We're all kind of on the edge of Will people hear the story or not hear the story as we go about our different places? And, and we come from all over. Our work is not supposed to stay in this building at all. I think about all the places people come from. Blacklick, Pataskala, Grove City, Bexley, Grandview, Upper Arlington, Downtown, Old Town East. Harrison, Victoria Village, Italian Village, Pickerington. Uh, where, where else are people from? Where? Obets. 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 Canal Winchester. Where else? Westerville, Powell. Thank you. Hilliard, uh, Lewis Center. Thank you. Where else? Mount Gilead. Whew. Talk about Galilee. <laughs> Ada, wonderful. That is where we will encounter the risen Christ if we go. 
Drop our fear, choose life, accept the call. We will find Christ living where we are. May that be so. Amen.